This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 20. One of the most prolific authors of the 20th century was a man named G.K. Chesterton. As a journalist, Chesterton wrote thousands of essays for London newspapers. He also penned a hundred books ranging from plays and poetry to history and theology. He even wrote detective stories. He created a series of short stories based on a fictional meddling crime-solving priest named Father Brown. Father Brown lived in a small English village in the 1950s that was quaint and quiet. Quiet except for its occasional murders. (laughs) There seemed to be more murders in this little village than in most modern major cities. And whenever there was a murder, there was Father Brown sleuthing around to see what happened. In 2013, the BBC turned Chesterton's stories into a television show that Jamie and I enjoyed watching, mostly because of Father Brown's character. I mean, if you haven't seen this, he's wonderful, unassuming. Like most shows revolving around homicide, and there are many, um, every every episode opens with a, a scene, a murder being committed, and then without fail, you hear this sound. It's the same blood-curdling scream, usually by the same woman, like clockwork. Every time we'd be, we'd be sitting there, and every time I would hear that scream, I would just laugh. I wasn't laughing because of murder. I was laughing because of how predictable that scream was. Scripture never laughs at the subject of murder. Murder in the Bible is a serious matter. Even from the beginning of time, the first family that ever walked the face of the earth experienced this great tragedy. After our first parents were removed from the Garden of Eden because of their sin, their son Cain slayed his brother Abel. We read that in Genesis 4. And since that time, murder has been a part of reality on this earth. If you scan the most popular television shows of our age, it's almost impossible to find one that does not involve killing in some way. There are like 38 CSIs now. (laughs) I'm not sure why this is, but I, I wonder if it could be that, so as we finish this show, we might kind of pride ourselves a little bit and think, well, maybe I've broken some of God's commands, but at least I haven't killed anybody. If we were asked which of the Ten Commandments we are confident we've never broken, it would probably be the sixth. You might um, skip honoring a Lord's Day from time to time. You might battle battle, um, idolatry regularly. You might even covet your coworkers' nice things. But I'm confident, hopefully confident, none of you would say that you struggle with the ongoing sin of murder. I hope you are enjoying this study of the Ten Commandments as much as I am enjoying preparing to preach them each week. I told you my email last night. It seems like I begin every sermon thinking, okay, I I think I've got a pretty good grasp on this command. And then by the end of the week, I feel like after reading and meditating on a text, I've learned so 
much more than I'd imagined. This week was no exception. This passage is surely in contention to be the shortest passage we've ever stood to our feet and read out loud. And so I've paired it with another one so you don't feel like we're just up and down too fast. It's only four words in English. It's just two in Hebrew, which we'll get to. But still, this little passage is not some insignificant, ancient command, but has real implications for our lives today as we seek to worship and follow Jesus as his disciples. In the sixth commandment, we are taught the honor of life and death. And since God alone is the author of life, he alone has the right to determine when each life comes to an end. Humanity is not given the authority to take life from another human being. We'll approach this command by exploring how it is taught on two different mountains. First, we'll look at it it's in its original context in Mount Sinai. And then we'll fast forward to the New Testament and see how Jesus deepens and transforms this sixth word in his Sermon on the Mount. So I want to organize our thoughts around two points drawn from two passages, Exodus 20, 13 and Matthew 5, 21 to 26, where we will see that murder is two things. One, it is a matter of life and death. And second, it is a matter of the heart. So there's our heading. Would you stand with me as we read together from God's holy and inerrant word? Though written long ago, still speaks to us today. Let me get my place in two different places. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Let your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first truth we learned about murder is that it is certainly a matter of life and death. Each of the commands that we've explored so far have been accompanied by helpful commentary that explain the command in some way. In addition, each of the commands contained at some point the mention of the name of the Lord as a part of stating them. As we reach the sixth command, there is no mention of the Lord and not one single word of commentary. Simply, you shall not murder. In Hebrew, it's two words, lo ratzah. That's it, just two words, which literally mean no murder. It even has this ongoing quality to it, like never murder. The word ratzah is used 47 times in the Old Testament, 
almost always exclusively in the case of planned or premeditated killing or the unlawful, unauthorized taking of a life. The King James Bible, which helped shape so much of our English language, translated this verse, you shall not what? Kill. Do you remember this? Kill. We read you shall not murder. Well, why the change? Well, kill does communicate the general sense of this word, but not all killing is prohibited in this command. So before we explore the meaning of these words, I want to do two things. First, I want to lay a very brief biblical, theological foundation for what this is saying. Then I want to look at what it's not saying, and then we'll look at what it says. So let's ask the question first, why does God prohibit murder? If we did a survey of our neighbors, almost everyone would agree that, hopefully everyone would agree, that it is wrong to kill another person. But how do we know this? Who says so? Who says it's wrong to kill someone? The primary reason we know that, even in our culture in the West, is because God has said so. The answer as to why is found as we look back in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, Moses writes, For God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that tiny poem holds an ocean of truth. Here we learn the reason, the very reason why we exist. God made us. God made you unique from all the other living things in creation because you are made in his image. Now the next passage I want to look at to just lay the next stone in looking at this foundation is Genesis chapter 9 verses 5 and 6. Here, God is speaking to Noah and his sons after he has judged the earth through the flood and remade it. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And then another poem. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood he shed, be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, that might seem a little antithetical at first, right? But look closer. What the Lord said to Noah and his sons is that he values life so much that if someone were to take that life, to take the life of another person, the killer's own life would be the penalty. And notice the reason connected to it. Why is this the case? The same words from Genesis 1.27. For God made man in his own image. So the rationale for this prohibition is a theological one. People bear the image of God. As people made in the image of the maker, only the maker can determine the length of our days. These verses teach us not to devalue another human life by taking it into our own hands. They also, at the same time, teach us not to inflate our authority by trying to play God and decide when the life of another person should terminate. Murder is like tearing a picture that God has made. It is like defacing an image that he has sculpted. 
The scripture commands us to honor the life of each person, every man, woman, boy, girl, based not on their virtue, but on the fact that they are made in the image of God. So this is the theological foundation of the command. Now, let's outline some areas that killing, um, that this command, this word for killing, doesn't speak to. There are seven different words in Hebrew that can be used to describe when someone has lost their life. The most common is the Hebrew word katal, which if you take a Hebrew 101 class, that's the word you work with learning everything. Kill, kill, kill. So... Um, we must understand the phrase do not murder is not a generic phrase for any kind of killing, nor is this a call for total pacifism. This has been used in the past in both of those ways. The term here is never used in the Bible to describe three kinds of killing. That of self-defense, that in war, and that in capital punishment. And I want to show you places in Scripture that speak to each of these. Let's look first at self-defense. Just turn the page, one page, to Exodus chapter 22, verse 2. Exodus 22, 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. This means if someone is breaking into your house at night and dies in that altercation, you have not violated the sixth command, but you've acted in self-defense. Of course, this would include other scenarios where a person's trying to defend themselves or to protect their children or their spouse or any person who's in danger. This word doesn't prohibit killing from self-defense. It also does not speak to killing in war. Already, as we've made our way through Exodus, we crossed Exodus 17 where uh, we fought, the people of God fought the Amalekites and so there was a lot of murder there as God's people won the victory. Throughout much of the Old Testament, and we finally need to even make comments on this, you know, it's, you know it already to be true, There's every military advancement we find in the Old Testament includes the killing of the enemies of God. Those acts were never considered a violation of the Sixth Commandment. But let's fast forward to the New Testament. If you'll remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, this centurion soldier comes to faith in Christ. Do you remember he's got this the sick child, and Jesus says, uh, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And he could have said, as a centurion man is leaving, now I want you to resign your post and join you know, the Salvation Army. But he doesn't say that. He just says, keep walking by faith. Um, today, if a Christian is fighting for their country against an enemy and are required to take the life of another, they're not in violation of this command, because it is war that is uh, originated from its nation. Third, this does also not include capital punishment. Now, you've already heard a whisper of that from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, right? Where if someone murders, the Bible says, like, their life may be required of them. But then the Apostle Paul shares that same idea in his letter to the Romans. There he explains the responsibility of government in helping maintain order and civility. In Romans 13, 14, he says, But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, he's talking about the government, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So there, 
Paul's attributing the work of the government in capital punishment as God's exercise of judgment in maintaining peace and order. And we don't have time to dive deeper into any of those categories, but as we think about the command, do not murder, the scriptures don't see self-defense or fighting in a just war or capital punishment as breaking the sixth commandment. Now, let's bring into focus what it does mean. Specifically, the sixth command, you shall not murder, means you shall not murder. Everybody write that down. Well, fascinating. We've come all the way to church this morning to hear an exposition of Scripture, and the best Boswell could do is say that murder means murder. Well, yes, with all respect, that's exactly what I want you to hear this morning. We live in a society obsessed with a couple of things, self-glorification and a culture of death. And so we need to be reminded that God has spoken on this vital subject. We have not ascended as humanity to a place where we don't need to be reminded of God's thoughts on murder. The tragedy in Uvalde was on this very calendar year. Even yesterday, in a suburb of Raleigh, a 15-year-old boy killed 15 people, including a police officer. We don't go through a 48-hour cycle of the news without some mention of someone committing homicide. And each time you hear that news, you're hearing news that someone has broken God's law and his command. We need a revival of the sixth commandment. Even if much of our society would would agree that murder is wrong, there are still some categories that our nation has decided that would be quite acceptable to take a person's life, specifically in three very sensitive categories. Before I mention them, I want to echo what I told you last week. These topics will no doubt touch the lives of some even gathered in this room. And if if this passage unearths a, a root of pain or questions that you need to explore, our elders, I included, would love the opportunity to sit down with you and help provide pastoral care for you if you've been touched by one of these. My aim is not to shame you in any way, but to point you to the grace and forgiveness that comes through Jesus, the forgiveness that we all need. Yet we must speak where God speaks, even if the issues are sensitive. So we need to understand that the reach of this sixth command reaches into the areas of abortion and suicide and euthanasia. We don't have time to go into all of the questions of how and why and what, but I want you to see clearly that life is created by God at conception, and all of our days are ordained by his sovereign hand. We believe in life from the womb to the tomb and at God's discretion, not our own. There are many places that we could look to in Scripture that defend this. I want to look at one that I believe contains all of it in just a few short verses. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, I think tell the whole story. Verse 13 begins, for, this is David singing, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. 
when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So the psalmist begins by speaking of how God knits together the human life in the quiet of a mother's womb. All the pregnant mamas in the room said, Amen. His very hand intricately weaves life together. To take a life in the womb is to take a life that God has formed. And as we think about the end of the life, notice in verse 16, every one of the days of our lives were formed for us by God even before they came to pass. So there's the end of life also ordained by God, the very life that he originated in the womb. And at no point are we given the authority to take life whenever we so choose, not an unborn life, not our own lives, and not an elderly life, regardless of what a health insurance company or a government may say. From the womb to the tomb, we must hold every life as sacred. And so at the end of this first point, I just want to have two uses that I want to pull into view. The first is to look through the lens of the sixth commandment and for us to be people who view all of life as a precious gift from God. It is his and his alone. He's the giver of life. And the second use I want to draw out is, is simply a strong warning I do want to pause for a moment and speak to anyone who may be thinking about committing an abortion from an unplanned pregnancy or even suicide in the midst of utter depression or euthanasia with an aging loved one. I want to plead with you on the authority of God's word, don't do it. Don't do it. It's a matter of life and death. The second truth we must understand about the sixth word is it is also a matter of the heart. And now we look at this New Testament sermon that Jesus preaches, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. And what I want you to not miss is how he transforms this commandment and helps us understand its significance, not just externally, but internally. Jesus mentions a few of the Ten Commandments in this Sermon on the Mount, but the place he begins is the sixth Notice in verse 21, Jesus quotes the command, then he turns it on its head, showing how this command goes well beyond the physical act of murder. It also forbids murder of the heart. So perhaps you may have not lifted your hand against another person in homicide, but each of us have lifted our hearts against another person in anger. You see how Jesus calls this out? If you've, if you've harbored anger in your heart towards someone, you've broken this command. You might as well have murdered them. Not might as well, but it's as if you did. We may have not have touched another person in violence, but our tongues can do irreparable harm to our spouse, to fellow church members, to our neighbors. We've killed the dignity of another person. We've demeaned their worth. We've... Um, slayed their reputation with our words. We've broken the sixth command every time we grit our teeth and wish for the downfall of another person. 
At first glance, it may have seemed like many of us were off the hook, right? We walked in with our hands clean of the murder of the sixth command. But we realize that the guilt goes far beyond just clean hands. What we need are clean hearts. Because our hearts are dark, sinful from birth. And because of our sin, we deserve judgment. Not do we only need pure hands, we need pure hearts. Why? Because the heart is where murder begins. Jesus doesn't forbid getting angry. right? We see in other places, be angry and don't sin. But what Jesus does command is a set of practices to help diffuse anger and overcome evil with good. So if you're at odds with a brother, Jesus says, then leave your offering right there and go be reconciled. He goes on and says, stop the lawsuit. Make friends quickly, out of court. Don't seek vengeance. Turn the other cheek. The sixth command demands we be peacemakers. Sons of God, like the Son of God. One of the things I'm praying in our study of the Ten Commandments is that these words don't just stick on the surface of our lives, but they sink down into our hearts as they are meant to. One response to this text that's so clear is just the the act of repentance of sin. So whether you have committed violence against another person with your hand or your heart, God calls us to repent of sin, to call it just that, and to run to the arms of Jesus where forgiveness alone is provided. If you've sinned against another person in your family or in this church, a neighbor, a family member outside the walls of your home, be the first to say, I'm sorry. Run to them, asking for forgiveness of sin. I've thought about this all week, and you know we often pray for revival. What if that's what it looks like? What if that's the place it begins? With repentance of sin and humble reconciliation with one another. I mentioned G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown series earlier, and I want to conclude by um, reminding you of a quote you've likely already heard. This is likely his most famous quote. There's a story that circulated of Chesterton that's Um, In 1908, the Times asked uh, multiple authors to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton was always witty and quick on his feet. Um, He he submitted the shortest answer that they received. And answering the question, what is wrong with the world, he wrote, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. So in a conversation about something that at first glance might not apply to us as quickly as we might think, I think if we truly understand the sixth commandment, the way that Jesus interpreted it, we must agree with Chesterton and say that each of us are the problem. Each of us have blood on our hands. But it's not enough to stop at the problem. We're the only people with a solution. We're the only people with an answer. And his name is Jesus Christ. We must go to Christ who is full of forgiveness. And I want to end this sermon by sharing some really good news. To a room full of people who have broken God's law by committing murder of a thousand kind, Jesus doesn't flinch or recoil from your sin. Jesus' love for you, a person made in his image, was so strong. He endured the cross with great joy, laid down his life, murdered by the hands of Roman soldiers and murdered by the very sin he died for, yours and mine. 
for every act of crime that we have committed so that we could stand before a holy God completely blameless. Did you hear that? Blameless. And so if you're in Christ, that's how the Father sees you. Not because you've perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments, not because you've done more good than bad, but because you have faith in the Son of God who was sent to live the life that you could never live, who died the death that you deserved, who was raised on the third day so that one day you might overcome death. And he's coming back. He's coming back. He is the Lord of life and Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the sixth commandment where we're taught the honor of life and death. We praise you that you alone are the author of life and you alone have the right to determine when each life comes to an end. I pray that as your people, a people that you've redeemed and washed by the blood of the Lamb, who was slain in the place of ruined sinners, that we might with joy look at this sixth commandment and say we have failed, but Jesus has not. And we might run in the freedom of your commands and in the life that you have given us. Thank you that you are the one who is victorious over our sin, over the grave, over death, and over life. As we look to you this morning, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.